not only that group of boys that we saw just be an example of what it means to give together, God, but also that we have an opportunity to step up as a church, to step up as people, and to give across the world and also to our community. And so, God, I pray you would bless this Christmas catalog, that people would really give cheerfully to these specific ministries. And God, you love a cheerful giver. And so work in our hearts. Help us to just give back to you what you deserve. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. It was 18 really, really long years. Went through a lot as a person, as a group of people. Went through some depressive times, some really hard times. And then finally, in January of 2020, my misery ended. The Cleveland Browns made the playoffs. <laughs> it's one of the best days of my life outside of getting married and my kids being born. It was right top five. Now, people ask, how could the Browns go from literally the worst team for 18 years to one of the best? You could point to the quarterback, Maker Mayfield. You could point to the running backs of Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. You can point to many different areas of the team. But to me, the biggest change on the team wasn't the players, but it was the coach. The coach's name is Kevin Stefanski. If you're not a Browns fan, uh, he is a great coach. Not just because the Browns won, but because what he preached to get to the point where the Browns could win. And he preached team. Now, many coaches preach that, but not all teams live that out on the field. And for Kevin Stefanski, it was like Jesus walking on water. The miracle of the Browns winning was proof that what he was doing was working. And it's worked beyond that. This past year, one of the best running backs in the game is on the Cleveland Browns team. And he could have taken a big contract, but he decided to take a lesser contract because of the team. There's a guy on our football team named Odell Beckham Jr. If you know football, you know who I'm talking about. And he is one of those guys that just cares only about himself until he takes him to the Browns, until he was under Coach Stefanski. And now, even though his production is low, especially this year, he continues to preach, we have a good team that can win championships. It's all about the team. It's all about the team doing their part. And Kevin Stefanski preached that. And we saw this, and we see this still on the field. And that's exactly what Paul was thinking when he's writing this letter to the Ephesians in 60 AD, writing it from this prison cell in Rome. Of all the things that you look at in Ephesians, there's so many different characteristics of the letter that make it incredible. One of the main topics that you see in chapter 2, into chapter 3, into chapter 4, and it continues on all the way through chapter 6, is this theme of unity. Teamwork. Being as one. The only way that we as a church can function is if we're unified. And so what we're going to do today, as we look at this letter to the, to the church in Ephesians, I want to ask you to get your Bibles open and turn to Ephesians 2.11, and we're going to be in 2.11 through chapter 3 today. We won't be able to hit every verse, but I think you're going to get the idea. And today, instead of looking at the practical ways that we can live as a unified people, which there will be practical things today, but that's going to be more in chapter 4. Today in chapter 2 and 3, we're going to look at the truths of unity that should undergird everything we do, the theological truth, the understanding of if we're like this as a church, not only will we impact our lives in the wall, inside the walls, but we're going to be able to impact the, uh, the community and everything around the world. 
outside these walls. So it's all about unity. So let's jump in. Chapter 2, verse 11. Let me read the first two verses to you. And they're on the screen here as well. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens. That's interesting. But by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. Now, he starts off with these two words, don't forget or remember. Now, all of us need to remember. When we do that, we think about what life was before, and then we realize what we have now and how much we should appreciate that. We have that story in our house where we talk about how it used to be and how it is now with my son Hudson. My son Hudson had seizures when he was a year and a half, and for about two years or so, he had massive seizures, and it really affected our family. And then pretty soon after that, we just started praying, and we got him on the right medicine, and I think a combination of both, he stopped having seizures. And for years, he didn't have seizures. And then finally, we took him to his neurologist, and we did all these sleep studies and these MRIs, and we go into the doctor's office, and the doctor looks at me and says, I get to tell you something I rarely get to tell a patient. I am discharging your son from my practice. He doesn't have to see me anymore. And there are so many times in our house when, when life is hard or our kids drive us crazy. They don't. We're perfect parents. But if they did, we start talking about, but do you remember? Do you remember what it was like when we didn't have kids? It was a lot more quiet, but not as fun. Do you remember when Hudson, man, we, everything was predicated on if he wasn't having seizures or not, if we could really live life. Now he's discharged and he's living this great life now as a nine-year-old boy. And maybe you do that too. Remember how life was. Remember how, man, before recovery, how we were, but now that you're in recovery, look how amazing life is. Remember how we used to have this and we couldn't do this because we didn't have this job, but now we do, and thank God for that. There are things in our life that we have to look back and say, do you remember how it was before? And now, look what we have now. Thank you, God. And that's exactly what Paul does to the Ephesians. Like, don't you remember? Don't you remember how it felt to be looked down upon by God's chosen people, the Jews, who they should have been God's light and God's love to the nations, but they kind of got prideful and arrogant and made it about themselves and excluded people? Do you remember how that felt to be excluded? Do you remember this text tells us that you didn't have God on the radar and you didn't have hope? Do you remember how you used to live without that? You need to remember where you were and you need to now remember where you're at now to appreciate what you have and that's what Paul's saying, appreciate who you are and what you have now because of Jesus. He says this in verse 13. But now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. You remember how it was pre-Jesus and now remember what you have now because of Jesus. And this is a gift given by God to you through Christ. It's nothing you can earn. It's been gift-wrapped, put a bow, it has a bow on top, and it's given to you to receive. You now have Christ. Remember that. Let that undergird everything that you do. May his grace lead you in all that you do as individuals and as a church. And I have to say that to you this morning. 
If you are a Christ follower here, remember how your life was before Jesus. Aren't you grateful now that you have Jesus? That now you have hope? And now you have something to look forward to after you die? And even now when we live our lives, we have passion and meaning and purpose. We don't have to live for ourselves. We get to live for others and live for God's glory. How incredible is that? We need to remember that. Where we were pre-Jesus and where we are now. It's all about his grace. And his grace must undergird everything we do. For if we're going to function as a team, if we're going to be unified in Christ, it has to be that way. Now, Paul fleshes this out a little bit more as we continue on in verses 14 through 18. He says, For Christ has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one group when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating himself one new group from two different groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by the means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from God and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit, because of what Christ has done for us. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the author Philip Yancey, but he wrote this incredible book called What's So Amazing About Grace. In that book, he tells this story from Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway is recounting this story of this Spanish father who wanted to reconcile with his son. And his son fled to Madrid, of course, which is the capital of Spain. And he didn't know where his son was, and he wanted to reconcile and have a relationship with him again. And so in one of the local newspapers, he puts this in big letters. Paco, meet me at Hotel Montaña, noon Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. Now this father didn't know, or at least he forgot if he did, that Paco was a familiar name back then. And when he put it in the paper, and I want to make sure I get this right, 800 young men named Paco were waiting for their fathers. Think about that. 800 Pacos wanted to be reconciled with their dad. And when I think about what I see in this passage, we preach grace that we're all together with Christ. But as Ernest Hemingway shows us, there's also this kind of ungrace, that we have to be careful it doesn't slip into the church, that it doesn't separate us. Because if I see in this passage, it talks about this hostility, this wall of hostility between Gentiles and Jews who are opposed. Now they're together. And if we're not careful, this spirit of ungrace can get into the church and separate us. And that's exactly what God's enemy wants. He wants us separated My wife Paula and I, uh, we lived in Grand Rapids for a few years, and I went to seminary, and we met this incredible girl. Her name's Vita, and she became a very close friend. And Vita is actually visiting us this weekend. And so we've been touring different places that mean something to us, and we showed her Port Clinton campus yesterday, and it was a great day. 
But as we were driving, we were just catching up on life, and she started just to talk about her experience at church. Now, she is a Christian. She loves Jesus. She actually works at a church in mercy ministry, so she has a heart for people. But as I was listening to her, I started learning so many things about her, and what broke my heart was how many times she talked about how she didn't feel welcomed in her own church by Christians because of just who she is. And I kept thinking to myself about this ungrace that every single person, no matter where they've been, they should be all together in Christ. And this person who is in Christ, who is a part of a church, doesn't feel that way. And it just got me thinking, do others feel the same? I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. The church should be known as a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. If you feel like you're perfect, this isn't a church for you. I'm sorry. Because from Pastor Ryan, to me, to the other pastors, to our worship team, to I hope all of you, we are broken people who are grateful that this hospital is open to all of us because we all need healing. No matter where we've been, every person should be welcomed and loved for who they are. Another phrase that I often want to say about the church that I don't always see is so many in our culture know what the church is against, but they're not exactly sure what the church is for. And we have to do a better job of preaching this grace that brought us all together in unity because if not, then too many people, if we had to put in the newspaper, if you've been hurt from the church, please come. Our church would be too packed to contain everybody. We have to do a better job. It's funny. We live in the United States of America. When I look around, it feels like I just live in the states of America. It doesn't feel as united as it once was. And what if we can't control how united the states are, but we can control how united we are by God's grace? And that the United States, which is looking for something to anchor into how we should act, what if they took their cues from the church? Everyone looks different, everyone acts different, everyone believes differently, but in Christ, we are one. Church, this is our opportunity. This is our opportunity to be unified more than ever. And that's why Paul talks over and over again about it's neither Jew nor Gentile, but it's one, one in Christ. Paul continues this. He says, so now, or consequently, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family, and together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles were also made part of his dwelling where God lives in his spirit. Again, Paul continues to talk about this idea of unity. In fact, he gives us examples, practical ways where he shows us this is how the church ought to function. And so he even says this, you are citizens along with God's holy people. Again, he's writing to people who were here and here with God, and he's uniting them, Jew and Gentile. Some far, some close, but in Christ, they're in God now. They have a passport into this new kingdom that God rules and reigns over, and all are one. It doesn't matter about our background. What matters is that we're in Christ now, and we have a passport into that kingdom. 
I bet you if I went around with a microphone, I said, tell me your past church experience. What church did you grow up in? What did you believe? We'd probably have former Catholics, Presbyterians, Methodists, Mennonites, Baptists, Agnostics, Atheists. All of you are represented here. But that doesn't matter today. What matters is we're here and we're in Christ and we're unified. We are part of his holy people. And that's what unites us. Paul says, here's another example. We're members of God's, only, uh, God's family. Not only do we have a passport, we actually have a new birth certificate. A birth certificate into this new family that the undergirding of that family is Jesus Christ who brings us together by his grace. I don't know about you, but my family's perfect. I mean, honestly, I've said this to people, and I'm not joking. My extended family would embarrass Jerry Springer. Like, we couldn't even be on that show because it wouldn't even, he would be like, I don't even know what to do with you. <laughs> but at the end of the day, we just went through a family situation. Uh, my grandmother was sick and hadn't talked to some of my aunts in years and stuff. But at the end of the day, we were all together because of my grandma. We're a family at the end of the day, even though I don't really like some of them. And they probably don't like me. That's just how it is. We're family. We're blood. We're in it together. And you probably have people in the church who look over like, I don't really like that person. Or you know Christians that you don't really like, but at the end of the day, guess what? We have the same last name. On our birth certificate, it says part of Christ. We are members of his church now. We are his people. We are unified. We're on the same team. It's about him and not about us. We're a family. Let's start acting like it, right? And then he gives the other example. Together, we are his house. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Jesus himself. A lot of people call this place God's house, and it is, but it isn't. God's house is the capital C church. The capital C church is people in Port Clinton, Sandusky, Norwalk. It's people in Ghana today, those in France, those in Burundi, those in Spain, wherever it is. If you're in Christ, we're all together. God's house is his people. And at the cornerstone of that house, our apostles and teachers tell us in God's scriptures, is the cornerstone of Christ. We are all stones that build the house, but no stone is better. No stone is more beautiful. No stone has more, stone has more value. We're all stones connected to the cornerstone of Christ. He unifies us. We are his by his grace. We are all one and Paul talks about this in chapter 2, he talks about this in chapter 3, he talks about this in chapter 4 to make a point. When you look around, in this room and beyond, we are one in Christ. If you say yes to Jesus, Jesus tore the walls down with each other and with him so we can be one with him forever. We are part of his kingdom, we are part of his family, and we are building his house. His house so we can do something to show people who Christ is. So if we fast forward a little bit to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul continues on with his theme of unity. And it's so good because he wants to tell us how important it is that if we're going to be his church, we have to be unified. He says this in verse 6. This is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessing because they belong to Christ Jesus. Again, he goes on in this unity, but then he says just something a little different here. We share equally. And that's important. Because there's some people in the church that think maybe their stone is a little bit bigger. 
a little closer to Jesus, that cornerstone, and so we look down on people. We think our spirituality is better. We think we know the Bible better. We think we're closer to God. So we look down on people. Paul says, no, 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 we're equal in Christ. I may have a degree in the Bible, but that means nothing when it comes to sharing and who Christ is. You and I are equal in that way. And there's some of us that have the opposite standpoint where we think we are just looked down upon. We're just nothing. Well, I can't speak. Well, I can't do this. I don't have money. I don't have this. And you just look down on yourself. But this is so beautiful. You are equal with everybody. And you need to hear this today. If you're a Christ follower, you are on his team. You are a part of his kingdom. You are in his family. You are a part of his house that God is building to bring glory to himself around the world. We are equal. We are one. Not Jew, not Gentile, but one in God's family. So you don't get to look down on people and you don't have to look up at people. We are one. And so we cannot and we must not let age, gender, education, socioeconomic status, appearance, theological perspectives, political persuasions, colors of skin, and so on to treat others differently. If you are Christ, we are equal in him. And we get to share in that blessing forever. As I said before, Christ tore down the wall that separated us, and now we're together. The same wall he separated God with us, we're together, all in Jesus, by his grace. And Paul says, here's why. Your purpose, church, our purpose, church, God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom and its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are God's plan A, as his people, to live out grace amongst one another so that we can live that out amongst others. So when they're questioning who God is, or they feel like they don't belong, or they live in a fractured, fractured state of America, they can come to us and say, I belong. And not only do I belong, I get to go out and live for God's glory. And how do I live for God's glory? By loving people just the same. So church, here's what we get to do. Let's be an example of unity to the world. Let's demonstrate we are a family and we're on the same team. Let's play different positions, but wear the same uniform. Let's have different preferences, but let's agree on Christ. Let's see and treat each other as equals because the, the playing field at the cross is level. Let's be a church united around the grace of God and let's invite others and welcome them into his team because just like the psalmist said, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Let's pray together. God, the greatest gift we can give you is our unity. You went to great lengths to remove the dividing line between you and us, and between us and others. Thank you for the grace of Christ. For if I didn't have that, I couldn't be a part of you. And if we didn't have that, we couldn't be a part of you. And if we didn't have that together, we couldn't be a part of each other. Thank you for me in this world that you are real. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's end with our benediction verse, Ephesians 3.20, which we'll actually get to look at together. So stand with me.
Say it with me. Now all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Next week, baptism weekend. Get ready. Have a great Sunday.